This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With a new president in office, there's a lot of talk about cabinet nominations and advisors. But other people work closely with the president, the ones who feed him. And through the years, many of them have been African-American. For his new book, Denver author Adrian Miller identified at least 150 African-Americans who served the president as cooks, stewards, and other culinary workers. Some were forced into service. Others became so trusted they were asked for political advice. Miller's new book is called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. And uh, Adrian, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. One personality I think really stands out in this book, Zephyr Wright. Tell us about Zephyr Wright. Well, Zephyr Wright, of all the cooks that I identified, if I could just meet one and sit down and have a meal, she's the one. So she was the private cook for Lyndon Johnson, and she cooked for the Johnsons before he actually became a politician. And um, a lot of people credit her food to helping his rise in politics because, he, you know, the nature of things was to entertain and get to know people at, and bring them over to your house. And so they, she would make these wonderful southern dinners and was well known for the food that she created. But she encapsulates a lot of the themes of my books because she was a culinary artist, well celebrated. She was a family confidant. When uh, Johnson was inaugurated, she sat in the inauguration box with the family. And then um, she was like a civil rights advocate because Johnson would use her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Experiences like what? Well, the family would drive back and forth from Texas to Washington, D.C. And when she went along with the family, she couldn't go to the bathroom with them at the same time. She could not eat with them in the same places. It got so bad that she finally refused to make the trip. And so Johnson would say uh, to members of Congress, it's a shame that the president's cook has to experience this. So obviously, after the assassination of President Kennedy, she, as Johnson did, rose uh, to prominence in the White House. Yes. Yes. But there was a holdover chef from the Kennedy administration, a French chef named René Verdon. Now, he was making French food, which LBJ and the Johnsons weren't feeling. So they would ask him to make Tex-Mex <laughs> and Southern food. And he would call chili con queso, you know, that cheese. He would call that chili concrete. And so they would ask him to make, you know, nachos and other things. And when he would mess it up, they'd say, oh, go talk to Zephyr and have her teach you how to do it. It got so bad that Verdon finally quit. I see. Yeah. Boy, that, that is a symbol of the difference between the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, if there, if there was one. Yeah. Are there other White House servants, and by that I mean cooks and stewards, that's another position, who became politically active that way in, in their advice? Yeah. One of the most remarkable stories is a woman named Lizzie McDuffie. Uh, now, she was actually a maid, but she would help out with food, especially when President Roosevelt would travel. That's who she worked for, President Franklin Roosevelt. In the 1936 election, she actually went on the stump and uh, stumped for him in cities with a large African-American population. And so she was so successful. She went to about eight cities that after he won that 1936 election, Roosevelt invites her to the Oval Office and personally thanks her. Now, the Hatch Act existed at that time, which forbid, you know, forbade um, White House employees from you know, campaigning and things like that. But she never got pressed on it. I see. And one way that uh, servants in the White House wind up helping politically is – if there is a state dinner or something like that on short notice, right? So where food becomes something of an of an elixir of diplomacy, they have to act. Right. I think of, of that, I think in the Johnson administration in which he would call dinners at the last minute. Right. And here we get Zephyr Wright again, and we just see the genius of Zephyr Wright. So if he would show up at the last minute with a large party and uh -huh. demand a dinner, what she would do is she would just start sending out a bunch of liquor 
so people wouldn't think <laughs> about the food, and then she would serve up whatever was needed. That bought her some time, oh, yeah. and it kept people entertained. And no one complained, believe it or not. Why the focus on African Americans in particular? Give us some context into the role they have played over time. Yeah. Well, I think it's simply because African Americans have dominated um, the cooking positions in the White House uh, throughout history. And I've identified 150 people, as you noticed, and I know I'm just scratching the surface. And they've um, played a lot of different roles. And over time, they have mirrored the status of African Americans in the broader society. A lot of our presidents were slaveholders, so we had a lot of enslaved cooks in the White House. And then we see people as free laborers engaging in White House cooking. Now, at that time, for much of the 18th and 19th century, cooking and servitude were pretty much the only jobs that African-Americans could enter into without getting a lot of white backlash. Mm. And so a lot of people chose that profession and excelled at it. So it's a microcosm in many ways of what's happening nationally. And we really should talk about the nation's first president, George Washington, who had several African-Americans in service. And one of them named Francis, was a steward and ran the household, managing the budget, ordering the food, supervising other employees. Another was a cook named Hercules, and both were Washington's slaves. Well, Francis was a free man, actually. So Francis was a biracial man born in Haiti who uh, immigrates to New York probably in the 1750s, runs a business and one place called Francis Tavern, which a replica exists to this day. So Washington would come over and grub at his place, and he loved his food so much that when he became president, he said, I want you to manage my kitchen. I see. And Hercules was brought from Mount Vernon to run the uh, residence in Philadelphia. Uh, The residence was there before the White House was actually constructed. Right. The interesting thing about that is uh, Pennsylvania had a law that said any enslaved person who was on Pennsylvania soil for more than six months was automatically free. So the way that Washington got around that is just about the time the six-month deadline would toll, he would pack up all of his enslaved people, send them back to Mount Vernon, have them stay there for a few weeks, and then bring them back to start the clock. Anew. Resetting the clock. Yeah. And that was true for this cook named Hercules, who, yes. who was a slave. Yes. What did that make you think of George Washington? Did it change your impression of him? Uh, well, no, I was fairly, fairly um, um, well-versed in his history uh-huh. with enslaved people. So it just reinforced the things that I knew. And I know it's a complicated situation, but uh, I just like, man, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. To do that? To send him out of state to reset the calendar. Yeah. Any sense of who Hercules was? Yeah. So we know that he was a very temperamental chef. He probably would fit in well in a lot of the cooking shows we see on TV today. But um, very accomplished. Um, We know that he was a rather stocky man, kind of a large man, but um, just very good at cooking. And I think later escaped. Yes. On Washington's 65th birthday, he runs away. And he's only seen one time after that. And there's a, a portrait of Washington of, of Hercules uh, sitting in a museum in Spain, and the portrait was painted by Gilbert Stuart, the same guy who painted that iconic portrait of George Washington. It says, "A cook for George Washington." And you look at the clothing in that painting, and it looks like the clothing a chef in Europe would wear at that time, not one in America. So we believe that he just ran overseas. Ran overseas. So that he would not be caught, I suppose, by Washington, who I think continued to look for him. Right. Washington spent a lot of time looking for him, and um, he would spare no expense to track him down. Oh. Adrian, give us some examples of foods that presidents particularly liked and brought to the White House, and therefore the people had to cook for them. <laughs> right. So um, best example is probably Lyndon Johnson, just the, the Southern and Tex-Mex that he brought. So he loved chili. He loved nachos. By the way, President uh, Obama loved nachos as well and guacamole. Uh, But, you know, a lot of 
presidents loved French food. So Jefferson definitely had French food served in the White House. So did James Monroe. And Chester Arthur, he was known as a gourmand. Uh, and so he had a lot of uh, elegant food. But then Kennedy brought a lot of New England favorites. So usually it's the food of their childhood that they bring with them. Jefferson having an interest in French cooking, I understand, brings essentially a kind of gourmet mac and cheese into the White House. Right. So in the earliest days of mac and cheese in this country, it was really wealthy Americans who would travel to Europe. They got introduced to the dish and they would bring it back. And we know that Jefferson served mac and cheese in the White House because one of the dinner guests wrote about it in his diary. He was a guy named Reverend Manassas Cutler. And he was uh, he really couldn't figure out what mac and cheese was. He thought the pasta were big onions. And so he had to ask the guy next to him, what is this dish? And he explained that it's a pasta dish from Italy. And, blah, blah, blah. and that person was Meriwether Lewis. Ah. Yeah, he was at that dinner. On- onions and cheese, that sounds awful. You mentioned several presidents who had a little trouble pushing themselves back from the table. <laughs> Their wives and staffs actually had to try to keep them on diets. And uh, President Taft who notoriously weighed about 340 pounds, had a real taste for apple pie. Yes, uh, he loved he loved apples in general. And so when he would travel on the train, there was an African-American chef named John Smeads, and he was well known for his apple pie. But he was on a strict diet, and if the first lady or the White House physician was on the train, it was a no-go for the president. But even when they were off the train, the staffers knew he was on a diet and they knew they would hear it from either the first lady or the White House physician. So they actually formed this secret order of the apple pie in order to get some of John Smead's famous pie but keep the president away from it. And the president knew what was going on and kind of played along. There is a time, I think, when Taft is on a train journey and there's no dining car attached to his train to which he objects hugely. Right. So he wanted to get his grub on. And fortunately, the first lady and neither the first lady nor the White House physician were on the train. So he could actually eat what he wanted. Okay. And he wanted some filet mignon. And, but it was close to midnight. There was no dining car. So he orders the train to stop at a place in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where they can actually add a dining car. And he says, if I'm the president of the United States, I should be able to have a dining car attached to my train. And he gets one. He gets one. They make an unscheduled stop Mm -hmm. and they bring on a dining cart. Mm -hmm. And have to rouse some cook to make that filet mignon. And soon enough, he was eating filet mignon. Right. You muse in the book. Who was that cook that would have been roused out of sleep? We don't know the person's name, but it's likely an African-American. Because at that time period, African-Americans dominated the cooking profession, even on uh, the luxury trains. How would you say food trends at the White House have changed over 200 plus years? Well, in terms of the uh, VIP dining, the state dinners and other things, it's definitely had a French vibe. But as of late, since uh, the Clintons, when Hillary Clinton pushed really American regional food, it's really been a mix of high-end kind of celebration of American uh, regional food. But before that, it was pretty much French. There was a short time period from Theodore Roosevelt to Calvin Coolidge where we had these Swedish cooks who were dominating the White House. I don't know what that's about, but that was kind of the break. But it usually was a mix of French and Southern, and then we get to more American uh, regional celebrations. Food, specifically beans, caused a big controversy in Lyndon Johnson's administration. Uh, Here's some tape you found from the Johnson Library, where the president's personal secretary, Juanita Roberts, calls the cook, whom we've spoken about earlier, Zephyr Wright, and uh, Roberts questions Wright, very closely about what kinds of beans the president likes. So let's listen. Um, Zephyr Wright speaks first. He like pork and beans. He like pinto beans. He like uh, lima beans, green beans. That's green limas uh, are dried. Green limas. 
green. Mm-hmm. Why did that conversation take place? Well, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So the White House released a recipe for something called Pertinalis River Chili. And that's a river that runs alongside the LBJ Ranch in central Texas. Now, if you know any Texans... Chile in Texas does not have any beans. And so when the White House releases this recipe, people across the country freak out. <laughs> and they want to be reassured that their president loves beans. So this was all just a spin control. And so they had to go to the source, the authoritative source on the subject. That was Zephyr Wright. And it's funny because this is part of all of the uh, collection of the collection that of the audio tapes that Johnson had in the White House. So the recording system was actually put in under Kennedy. Johnson takes it up a large scale, and he actually recommends it to Nixon, and we know how that turned out. Yes, indeed, the doing in of Nixon. I want to play another bite here. So this is where Zephyr Wright describes a recipe we might find a little unusual, unappetizing today. (laughs) And the first voice in this case is uh, Johnson's private secretary, Juanita Roberts. Now, the green llamas, uh, the baby llamas, green baby llamas, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you prepare those for him? Just uh, in salted water and cook them and, and add a little uh, oleum margarine uh-huh. and pepper uh-huh. and cook them for a good long while until the juice in them is kind of thick. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to use the Velveeta, but you don't do that anymore. Well, I do that uh, for parties. For parties. Uh-huh. uh-huh. We use uh, the Velveeta also uh, mushrooms. You know, you call it uh, lima beans with cheese and mushroom sauce. Oh, that's what you call it. Okay. And the Velveeta's for the fancy occasions. That's right. But that's a dish that the beans might be integrated into, lest anyone worry the president doesn't like beans. That's right. We're talking about the president's kitchen cabinet. It's the new book from Denver author Adrian Miller. The story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. We have focused uh, some on drinks, much more on food. Let's go back to drinks for a bit. Uh, what stories did you find about alcohol in the White House and its role? Well, for whatever reason, we just don't like our presidents to drink too much. Yeah. Uh, maybe it has something to do with having the nuclear codes. I don't know. <laughs> so there's been a really uh, serious cat and mouse game in terms of presidents you know, saying that they will have drinks maybe for state dinners and other things, but not drink too much. One of my favorite stories involves uh, the Trumans. So the Trumans would want to have some old fashions before they would have dinner at the White House. So the White House butler, a guy named Alonzo Fields, who was there for a long time, would actually go ask what they want. So they wanted the old fashions. And it's a drink with bourbon, some sugar, water, and, and some bitters. So he made the first one. And Best Truman says, ah, this, could you make it a little drier? This is really too sweet. And he's like, all right. So he makes another version of it. She says, man, this tastes like fruit punch. Well, she didn't say man, but she says it tastes like fruit punch. And so Fields was so frustrated that he just served her straight bourbon. She takes one sip and says, that's how you make an old fashioned. <laughs> you simply serve bourbon. Yeah. Tell us about Arthur Brooks. Yeah, Arthur Brooks was an African-American man who was the White House wine cellar steward for a long time. And so he was a very trusted White House employee, and he was there for about 20 years. Uh, and when he dies, just to show the affection that Calvin Coolidge had for him, Calvin Coolidge actually went to his deathbed and showed great concern for him and went to his funeral. Uh, so it just shows you how a lot of times these White House employees became friends with the president. And sometimes multiple presidents, right? right yes. So he worked there from roughly uh, Taft all the way to Coolidge. So a nice uh, span. And he was at the White House before but took a little break before returning during the Taft administration. It's not just in the White House that food has to be prepared. I think two of Air Force One. Right. You note that there are not friars 
aboard Air Force One. So there are often these kind of awful, <laughs> unfried French fries. Right. So what they have to do is pre-make things either in the White House mess, which is another cooking space in the White House besides the White House kitchen, or they would pre-make them at Andrews Air Force Base, where the, uh, Air Force One is uh, stays before, when the president's not flying. And so they kind of finish things on uh, the plane. So a lot of the things are just kind of pre-baked, pre-fried, and then baked further on the plane. And the trade-off for soggy fries is that you don't bring a plane down with a an oil fryer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that would <laughs> be like tragic. A, a fair trade-off to right, me. Right, yeah. But the, the White House food has gotten a lot better, especially under the Obama administration. Um, before, people have complained about it, um, but it's quite good now. That is on Air Force One. On Air Force One, mm-hmm. yes. Will President and Mrs. Trump have any say in who cooks in the White House? Absolutely. So the White House executive chef who runs the entire kitchen – serves at the pleasure of the president. So right now, Christetta Comerford, uh, who's been there since the second term of George W. Bush, is holding over until President Trump decides what he wants to do. So he may retain her or he uh, may ask for someone else. And sometimes a president will ask for a private chef to come in and cook for just the family. That's what President Obama did with uh, Chef Sam Cass. Before that, the only other president to do that in recent memory was Lyndon Johnson with Zephyr Wright. Otherwise, the White House executive chef has done all the family cooking as well as the cooking for guests. Do African-Americans continue to play a strong role in the White House as they did historically? Yes. So you have three African-Americans, at least on the White House kitchen staff, and you have a lot of African-Americans serving in the White House mess, which is a cooking space that serves mainly the top officials in the administration. And then you have people still serving on Air Force One. So there's still a lot of African-Americans in the mix. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Adrian Miller is the author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African-Americans who have fed our first families, from the Washingtons to the Obamas, and now the Trumps. You'll find recipes for Thomas Jefferson's mac and cheese and Lyndon Johnson's prize chili at cprnews.org, along with an excerpt from the book. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Writing on the walls of an immigrant detention center inspired Denver poet Tiao Lim Go. This was the Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco Bay, where Chinese people coming to America were detained and interrogated in the early 1900s. As they waited, the detainees wrote poetry on the walls. The poems in the men's barracks are still there to this day, but the women's were destroyed in a fire. Go imagines what those lost poems may have been in her latest collection. It's called Islanders. And welcome to the program. Hi. Will you briefly set up some of the historical context behind the Angel Island Immigration Station? Well, the Angel Island Immigration Station was um, an outgrowth of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. In the late 1800s, America suffered a bank panic and depression. A bank panic? Yes, The Chinese had come during the California gold rush to build the transcontinental railroads. But after the bank panic, when the the jobs dried up, you know, they were out of work. The whites were out of the work and the Chinese became the target of white anger. That resulted in the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. And how does that lead to the creation of a station like this? The Chinese were at first detained in a warehouse in San Francisco 
And because of safety issues and the government wanted a place where the Chinese could be detained without, you know, the fear of escape, just like Alcatraz, right across the bay. An immigration version of Alcatraz. And these were Chinese immigrants who had just come to the United States or were hoping to make it here, or these were those who had already landed? It's a mix of both. Many of the immigrants were new immigrants trying to come into the United States. But some of the Chinese who, who were detained on Angel Island, they were in the U.S. before. Some of them were U.S. citizens, some of them might not be. But they were detained when they were trying to re-enter the United States. And how long might they spend at, um, at Angel Island? Two weeks is generally the minimum as they go through the whole interrogation process. There were some cases, especially if you fail the interrogations and you appeal and you fail and you appeal, it can take months. And I think the longest, it's either a year and a half or almost two years. What were these interrogations like? Do you have some sense of what they were being asked or screened for? The biggest category of, you know, immigrants trying to come in were families of Chinese who are already in the United States. That was one of the exceptions of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It allowed for immediate families of Chinese already in the U.S. And um, in order to prove that there's a relationship, let's say, if I come in and I claim that you are my father. Okay. They will ask me a set of questions. Things is like, where is the rice bin in your family home? Where is the rice bin? Yeah. Oh, you know, what direction, you know, do your house face? How far are you from the village square? And it's all the minutiae details of everyday life. They will ask me the same questions. They will ask you the same questions. And then they would see if they matched up. Mm -hmm. And if they matched up, they say, okay, this is a legitimate relationship. If they did not, I'm sorry, you're going home. Or there would be appeals and Mm -hmm. you would be on Angel Island for longer. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think these immigrants wrote poetry on the walls? There are probably two parts to that. It seems that there's a tradition of Chinese travel poetry. So in in Imperial China, you're not allowed to write unauthorized histories. And travelers, would, when they go from inns to inns, they actually be poetry boards where you can comment on like current affairs or you know things they are not allowed to say, otherwise say in public. Huh. The Angel Island poems might be an outgrowth of that. But I think the other reason why they wrote poems was... They were lonely. They were homesick. You know, they felt that they had failed their families. You know, many of them came to the U.S. as, you know, the family sent them. You know, they saved up all their money to come to the U.S. And they said, I failed. I'm still stuck here. And so were the poems in Chinese? Were the poems in English? Um, The poems are in Chinese. And most of the Chinese immigrants during that time came from the Canton province. So the Chinese script is the same whether it's in Mandarin or Cantonese. I believe they are intended to be read in Cantonese. In Cantonese. Your book is a collection of poems, and you do imagine what the women might have written. Mm -hmm. Again, the the women's writing was destroyed in a fire, correct? So I'd like to have you read an excerpt from one. Um, This is The Waves. The Waves. His father died suddenly, leaving a sick wife and four young girls. He decided to go to America, stake a claim on Golden Mountain, and come back for me. He wrote to me of Angel Island, where officers scrutinized his papers, and doctors made him stand naked as they inspected his eyes. He built a business selling groceries, sent money home, and came back to marry me. I threw up on the seas. 
He calmed me, made love to me. The first time I cried silently, I had not been with another man, but I knew he had a woman. What could I do? There was no land in sight. This is in part about the maritime journey that mm-hmm. happens before they land. Yes. I threw up on the seas. He calmed me, made love to me. How was it to imagine their experience? You, you visited Angel Island. Yes, I have. It was both an interesting and a terrifying experience to, to imagine. And this poem in particular, I literally wrote it from the exclusion laws of the time. And in 1924, the laws changed that even the wives of the of the Chinese could not come in to the into the United States. Here, I imagine what a woman who left China before the laws were put in place, but she arrived in the United States when the laws were in place and had to be deported. How does this relate to your own story, which eventually leads to Denver? So I'm an immigrant. I'm a U.S. citizen now, but uh, I came as a student. I stayed on to work. I'm considerably more privileged than the Chinese back in, you know, the early 1900s. But when I first started working, it was during a time when there were many more applications for a work visa than there were visas available. And openings, yeah. I actually got my visa through a lottery process. So I, I understand how arbitrary a lot of these decisions can be. Would you recommend going to Angel Island? Totally. Totally. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it's a very important history, especially at this time of, you know, this moment in the United States. Secondly, it's a beautiful place. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver poet Tiao Lim Go, her latest collection, Islanders, imagines writings by Chinese immigrants in the West that have been lost to history. You can read her poem, The Walls Speak, at cprnews.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'll say that I walk around the newsroom in gratitude for listeners who make what we do possible. Thanks for your support of Colorado Public Radio.